Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we are taking a look at Napoleon, Ridley Scott's new sword and sandal epic. Uh, of course, about Mr. Bonaparte himself. I feel like if you're an adult and you are listening to or watching this show and we're able to acquire the technology, you probably know who Napoleon is. I don't think we need to explain it much. Uh, we're also going to take a look at Saltburn. Emerald Fennel's new feature is out. We covered Promising Young Woman when it came back. I... Pretty young woman. It's promising young woman, isn't it? Promising I had it right woman, the yeah. first. I had it right the first time. I should have just kept going. Uh, we watched that back on the show a while back. I'm excited to talk about Saltburn. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on at the box office right now and why theater owners might be a little scared about what's coming for the end of the year. Normally, a very exciting time to be at the movies. And before we get to all of it, we need to talk about the news. Our first story this week: uh, Scream Seven is dead. I mean, maybe not, right? Uh, uh, Jenna Ortega drops <laughs> out of Sc- cooked, cooked. J- J- drops out of Scream Seven. Uh, Melissa Barrera, we covered this just last week. Uh, the star of Scream Five and Six uh, was recently removed uh, from Sc- Scream Seven following some posts regarding Israel and Hamas. Uh, Jenna Ortega, the next day after we did the show, announced that she's not going to be in Scream Seven. Uh, big news, Andy. What do you know about this? So while Melissa Barrera was fired by Spyglass uh, Entertainment, Jenna Ortega, on the other hand, just dropped out uh, herself. Uh, She claimed it was because of scheduling conflicts with uh, the second season of Wednesday, but it's pretty convenient timing that the day after her co-star is fired and they kind of announced that they're going to pivot the, the series around her character that she just drops out as well largely viewed as in solidarity with uh, Melissa Barrera. So Scream is now going to be completely like retooled. I I don't even know if they're going to bring back any of these kind of new young cast members at all, like Mason Gooding or anyone. Uh, Spyglass is having to just completely pivot. They were trying to, they were wanting to put out another Scream movie in probably 2025 or so. And uh, it's just not going to happen at this point. They're having to completely retool it, start over. Who knows what it's going to do. One of the biggest L's, I think, in recent studio memory. I mean, outside of like large losses, a la like Disney not putting out a bunch of bangers, uh, Spyglass managed to fumble what was otherwise a really well-going series. Uh, Scream 5 and 6 both did really well. They put them out back-to-back, one after another. And in 2022, Jenna Ortega had an incredible year as an actress. She started in Scream 5. Uh, X and Wednesday, the Netflix show. Most Barrera, a little quieter. It's done a couple other indies. Um, but after Barrera got pushed out, everybody just assumed, like we said on this show, correctly predicted, uh, that Spyglass would pivot and just have Jenna Ortega become the star. Well, not so. Uh, <laughs> she's out. Andy's right. I don't know where they go. Like, you had a year-over-year moneymaker, and you managed to fumble it. Incredible. Um I don't know what the plan is for Scream. Personally, I'd look into. I'd, I'd call up Nev Campbell. Be like, what do you want? Like, blank check. Just, just please come to a Scream movie for God's sake. You know, or figure out a way to get like flashback Matthew Lillard back in these movies. Like, do something, right? Matthew Lillard just did uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. Like, they, they gotta, they gotta pivot because you know, they can't reboot again. They've, they've done this too many times. It's like Spider Man now. We've had like three Scream reboots. Yeah, these movies have been huge. These reboots of grossed over three hundred million dollars on very small, are on very modest budgets. They've been huge hits for Spyglass back to back, which is really impressive because you never know how these legacy properties are going to do when you reboot them. And it, it managed to be, like I said, both be very successful, huge hits, and who knows where where they go now? And now the the two Melissa Barrera and 
and especially Jenna Ortega, are huge stars. Uh, Jenna Ortega is she's doing Beetlejuice too. She's got Wednesday. She's got she can do whatever she wants right now. Melissa Barrera also getting better roles, so they they can move on uh, pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, real bummer for Scream fans out there. Uh, something great for Taylor Swift fans. Uh, Eras, uh, the Eras tour film, is going to be released on streaming in December uh, with three additional songs. Now, neither of us are Swifties on the show, right? Mad respect uh, for uh, Taylor Swift, but neither of us particularly listened to her music. We didn't go see the movie. But I know the whole song thing is like a whole hook, right? Like catching specific versions of stuff. Like people get stoked for it. So like... As far as I know, this is also going to make a ton of money, right? Just like the theatrical run? Probably. Uh, come December 13th, we'll be able to probably rent. I don't think it's going to like Netflix or anything. Uh, be able to VOD the Eras Tour film, and it's going to have additional footage. This, this is a really genius move because in all her her touring and her movies, like sh- she'll withhold certain songs, and she'll play th- some some things in one place and not another. And so... like. It it's just a draw to continue to get her, her fans to to buy to, to buy her stuff and to see her and it's really successful. I know some friends who are already they're planning a day that they're going to get together with a group of their friends, watch it, and it the, the Taylor Swift business marketing is just insane. It's so successful and so smart. It seems to work every time. Yeah, it's bananas. Again, nothing but respect for Taylor Swift. Like, I don't know how they cooked this up. I don't know who thought putting out a concert film would be like the most brilliant thing ever, um, but it totally was. Like, she's already on a huge tour. Why not just immediately make that available uh, at a lower price for people at home? Uh, it reminds me of uh, like like vaudeville theater, right? Like Nickel Cinemas way back in the day. Oh, you can't afford to go see a live? Well, slide on in here and you can get almost the real thing at half the price. Um, and coming to VOD, like it's going to have, I think, just as much success. People will be able to uh, clip it, share it, screen cap it, put it on TikTok, like share memes about it. Like, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, other artists are following suit. Uh, Beyonce has her film coming out this next week, right? We were just talking about this yep. before the show. Renaissance. Uh, I, yes. Uh, Jennifer Lopez announced she has a film coming soon. I, I don't, just to wax really quickly, I don't think there's any dude artist that can pull these kinds of numbers, right? I'm not even sure either of those artists will make as much money as Taylor Swift has made here, but like, I don't, this can't, this can't last long, surely, right? Like, maybe someone like Bad Bunny, who's in- incredibly popular right now, but that's kind kind of it. I don't, I don't know um, what other artists, I mean, maybe a Harry Styles, but um, not near to this amount. Like, the the Taylor Swift popularity is just insane. It's got to be Kanye. It's the only way. No, I don't know who, anybody, who else could do it. Uh, shout out to Taylor Swift. I mean, huge, huge, huge success. Additionally, uh, one more note on this story. Uh, the film at theaters has crossed $250 million globally. Honestly, I know she's a huge deal in the United States, especially Texas. But this just goes to show like how narrow somebody's like field division can be. Andy, I genuinely thought this movie was going to make over a billion. So it's in a way, it's humbling to see that like the rest of the world does not feel the same way people in my age bracket in Texas feel about Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? Like clearly this is mostly a domestic thing, right? Yeah. Like I said before, uh, this made most of its money in its first week. Um, almost a hundred million dollars the first weekend it came out and then it's been out for about six weeks since then. So it's taken an additional uh, five, six weeks to earn the other 150 million. So it definitely 
made most of its money that first week, and then it, it's slowly kind of it's taken a while. But it's still for a concert film uh, that was probably shot for I think very cheaply, just several million dollars. Since there are the production, the stage productions are just happening. Um, massive return on investment for her, and um, and and a big boon for theaters who who need butts and seats. One more note before I move off this story. Uh, do you remember that scene in Amsterdam, Andy? When Taylor Swift guest star like clumsily gets pulled under a car in like yes. one of the clunkiest edited <laughs> I just every time I think I see screenshots from the years here, I think of that. I'm like, God, the last time I saw Taylor Swift in a movie theater was this horrible like very very small scene in Amsterdam where she's terrible. Like because because of just the way she's put in the movie. It's it's Amsterdam's a clunky movie all around. Anyway, uh one more story to move on to before we get to Napoleon. Uh regarding the box office this week. Uh, Hunger Games and Napoleon have taken the week. Andy covered this last week and the week before. How many movies were coming out over the Thanksgiving week, Andy? It was like nine, 15? Yeah, well, there were there were four releases on, on Thanksgiving week, but five days before, there were four releases on uh, that the previous Friday. So just eight, I mean, eight releases in the span of six, five, six days. It, it's crazy. It's too many movies. It's too many movies. And I'll tell you what, like, I didn't know what was going to do well, but I definitely assumed Disney's Wish would do well. And it turns out it hasn't. Uh, it's underperformed with something like, what, 31 million? And originally, like, a couple months ago, that was that was on track to make 45. So it made two-thirds, two-thirds of what they thought it would make, which is not outstanding. We'll talk a little bit more about Disney in between our reviews here when we talk about the box office for the rest of the year, but I definitely didn't think uh Hunger Games and Napoleon were going to take the week. Andy, what was what was your pick? I had no idea those two movies were going to Hunger Games 4. I had no clue that was going to do that good. I I thought that Napoleon and Wish would kind of come out on on top because they're they're big new releases from big studios and I I figured the Hunger Games uh, steam would would all be over after the first weekend. Uh, but kind of a, a big upset in all ways. Like, like you said, the Hunger Games the prequel came in, out on top. It's it's made $200 million now globally. Um, Napoleon actually did way better than than projected. It's still, I mean, it's a very expensive movie, $200 million, but that's kind of chump change for Apple. So they're not, they're not worried about box office just yet. Um, but that did a lot more popular with older audiences. Uh, and again, Disney's wish ungranted. Uh, it just didn't hit with uh, with family, you know, family films. Uh, you had they had to contend with uh, trolls band together, uh, the trolls film that came out again five days before. Uh, so there, again, just too many movies, and just wish just looks really lackluster. I'd like to see it at some point just to see why it was so lackluster, but nothing in the trailer made made it look enticing to me. Man, I I'm in the same. Christine kind of wants to see it and, and like I, I wouldn't mind I guess going to see it for a date night or something but like every Disney movie shows up on Disney Plus in like 60 days right like I don't have to wait that long and I can just watch it at home so I, I don't know I'm, I'm if we cover if we do wish we'll cover it in a micro review for the show for sure I, I definitely want to make sure we get to that as for the, the 35,000 foot view like seems like a pretty average Thanksgiving other than the number of releases people turned out uh, Napoleon did have uh, a surprising amount of success, I think, thanks to, of course, older males. And also, over in Europe, it did well. And, like, I guess I'm not surprised that it did well in Europe, but but uh, that's a nice boon, I think, that a lot of, like, traditional American holiday 
oriented features that are going to be coming out on American Holiday, a la Thanksgiving, you're not expecting to kill it over overseas, right? Like you're probably probably slanting more towards the day. Um, but you know, uh, overall pretty good. If anything, I think I'm excited to talk about it. Andy, another thoughts before we jump to Napoleon? I think I'm ready. All right. Well, I'm going to be taking the summary on this one. So please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. So Napoleon is, of course, the, sto- the story of Napoleon Bonaparte set from the late 1780s uh, to the early 1820s, 30s, I believe. Uh, Napoleon covers the rise of the man, uh, the myth, the legend played by Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, uh, Napoleon is a conqueror, right, in France. Uh, he begins as a, a kind of a, a kind of a cadet. Uh, he, he quickly becomes a brigadier general after uh, working through a couple of operations. Uh, after that, he continues to essentially seize promotion after promotion until he's eventually crowned emperor of France. Uh, and then, of course... Well, I, I don't. I don't want. We don't do spoilers on this podcast, but like any like any historical biopic, you understand a human a human man must fall. Like I, Napoleon is supported by the love of his life, uh, 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 Josephine, uh, played by Vanessa Kirby, who is transformative in this role. Uh, it is a sword and sandal epic, a, a la uh, Ridley Scott, of Musk- course, director of Gladiator, <laughs> yeah. Alien, Blade Runner. Yes, musket and clog. <laughs> Musket and Clog, I think, is probably the better the better one for him. Musket and Clog might make might make the YouTube thumbnail. Um, but overall, uh, Napoleon is a a large historical biopic. Uh, it cost a lot of money to make, two hundred million dollars. And while it seems like Apple may not make their money on it, Ridley Scott's expressed interest in releasing a four hour cut on Apple TV Plus. And most interestingly enough, and this is my favorite fact about it so far, it only, he shot it in sixty two days, which is insane. Stanley Kubrick spent decades researching Napoleon to make a feature. Other other artists have tried and failed. And Ridley Scott makes this thing in just over two months. I don't believe it. Andy, what do you think of Napoleon? Uh, overall, I, I enjoy it. enjoyed it. I, I think a lot of it really works. Um, it, it's great to see Ridley Scott back at the helm. And, I mean, he really knows how to shoot a movie and... The, these battle scenes are long and very well like choreographed, and there's a ton going on. And I, and I was listening to some interviews with with Cass and stuff, and and apparently, you know, he he like shoots things live. So he'll like when when Walking Phoenix is walking through the camp, there's cannons going off as they're recording. And whereas a lot of productions, they would be like, well, you know, just imagine that there's booms here and there, and we'll we'll add it in post. And um, he really wants his actors to feel it, and he, he'll make do real long like eight to ten minute takes um and it really gets his actors in into that feeling and that comes across on screen uh like a lot of his other films the action is is top notch the battles are brutal they don't really explain too much of what's going on but you know you got horses on this side and horses on that side men with sabers and soldiers you don't need too much explanation it kind of falls short a little bit on the narrative. It focuses a lot on on the, the relationship between Josephine and Napoleon, but it it doesn't really like what's it trying to tell us, or where where do we really want to get with these characters? We like we don't get a lot of insight into the man. It's not really a biopic. It's more like come lo- look at all the the Napoleon battles that that he won and and or lost. Yeah, so was, it, it's it, gonna... it's a mix. A lot of things work. Some some don't. Yeah, I think Napoleon's biggest pains are in its script uh, because the visuals are outstanding. Uh, the production is fantastic. I've always liked Ridley Scott just fine. 
But this and his last feature, The Last Duel, like have really turned me on to his ability to choose perspective like in what he presents to the audience last duel especially i mean god there's three of them right like and it's very explicitly showing the same situations from three different perspectives um scott like really can put his audience in whatever seat he wants them to be in whether he's on napoleon's side or whether they're against napoleon uh whether they're rooting for josephine his lover or they don't like her and this film like really interestingly it seems like it takes more from like historical fact and draws from his letters to his family and brother and of course to his lover and back uh, to just kind of present what we know of the man rather than like put you on his shoulder and like have you go with him on his adventures. You never really get inside Napoleon's head. If anything, like I think you find out more about him through events that transpire rather than like how he feels about those events because what you find is our Napoleon while he is of course a conqueror on the battlefield and a brilliant military mind uh, is, is kind of a soft boy. And, and there's a lot of jokes mm-hmm. about that from in history, political cartoons and people know him to be a rather short man, have a Napoleon complex. Right. And this movie like manages to do a really good job of stepping into that space. The problem is I think sometimes it stands so at odds with the incredible battle sequences that it slows the movie down and it feels odd. And I think a lot of audiences have walked away feeling like, yeah, parts of it are really fun. Other parts are slow or weird or I didn't get it. Or they're, you know, explicit. What what do you think, Andy? So one thing that I've learned and and read and heard in some interviews was that uh, the, the scenes, like the more political aristocrats talking scenes, a lot of that is not only improvised, but, uh, they didn't really rehearse a lot of it. Um, they, of course, uh, learned their parts. Like I listened to an interview with uh, Vanessa Kirby where she says, you know, they, they learned their, their parts and their lines and they did a lot of research separately, but they never rehearsed together until it was just the time to shoot. And then they would just shoot. And then there's a number of uh, times where they just Im- improvised. They had guidelines and then improvised a scene and they would improvise for like five or 10 minutes and, and Ridley Scott would maybe take one minute uh, f- from it. So it kind of gives it a... Uh, a strange life to it uh, because there's there's a couple of things where shocking things kind of happen on screen and you can tell the actors on screen are shocked not just uh the the audience um but it it, it kind of lacks a through narrative and usually a, a movie like this will f- use our main char- a character like napoleon to maybe touch on larger things or touch on larger kind of issues so, Something like uh, the social network isn't really about Mark Zuckerberg. It's it's more about a certain cult of personality, and that's what I was kind of wanting from this. But we we don't ever really get it. Yeah, I, I was so interested in uh, Napoleon's lover, Josephine, uh, played by Vanessa Kirby. I, like I said, I, before I saw the film, I'd seen people saying Joaquin Phoenix is great. Vanessa Kirby is above over the top she's tremendous like she she floats through the movie like like a, like an angel or a ghost right like you 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 don't even expect her to be as as good as she is here um and her role's simple but a lot like the last duel i'm reminded of like our scenes with like jacques legree uh when we're seeing his perspective and not like his lover's perspective at all similar kind of bones here like i want to see the josephine movie as much as i want to see the napoleon movie and we're never getting that. And like she wasn't the big figure in history, and that's fine. But I think Scott sets the two of these characters up to be really tremendous together. 
but we in the audience never see how tremendous they are because we're so busy looking at Napoleon's tremendous accomplishments. And, and like that makes, you know, him being a cock or him being like a small man. <laughs> so I, I think I can say that on the internet. Uh, I can say that on this show, right? Um, that, that makes that, that like funny, but also like inversely feel very incongruous with like the larger events unfolding. So it's just weird, right? Like our man is emperor of France, but also people are making fun of him in the papers and he doesn't seem to care, but you know, he does like that stuff I think makes for a, a good rewatch kind of rewatchability, but I I think makes for a confusing first stop. Right. It never really tells us like, you know, apparently he was a military genius or military master, whatever. We never see that other than he just wins the battle because he wins because he because he won wins the battle. And it's like, well, I at one point he says, you know, I just know where to put a cannon. And that's kind of all we get. We don't really get into the mind of like why he's so much better at outmaneuvering his his opponents for so long uh, before he, he finally doesn't. Or you know what? How he kind of navigated the political area and came to power. It's not really well explained. He just kind of does. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much more time in vagary, like picking apart the script. I do want to mention some things that I think are really exceptional. Um, number one, the costuming. Uh, we got the costuming's incredible in this movie. It's probably. I think it'll win the Oscar. I I don't know what else would beat it. I mean, every freaking piece of thread is like hand sewn through a thing and it's all period from late 1700s so all of it is specifically tailored and like it's like you got hundreds of extras scott does not cheap out on extras on camera that was one of the things that really surprised me if you if you have like a a street that napoleon is riding through on a horse there will be 19 people walking through frame uh if you've got a battlefield you'll copy and paste platoons and units you know and cgi them all in there sure that's fine I get that, uh, but you know you'll have a platoon shot, and it'll be forty-five dudes and eighteen guys on horses down this huge line. Maybe some of them are copy and pasted, but like I can't believe how much money is on screen. And for two hundred million dollars, like Apple got what they paid for. I don't think they're gonna make it back. It's worth mentioning, but that's not what it's about. Just like Killers of the Flower Moon, like they're trying to forge longer relationships with filmmakers, and I think they're doing a great job. Um, the costuming's incredible. The music's real big. The color grading is really good. If you're an editor, the color grading in, in Napoleon is very bold. Um, it's yeah. nice what, to what see what, what, what it's nice to see what two hundred million dollars gets you when you're not making a superhero movie. Because when you look at like The Flash or Quantumania, you you see so much money going towards VFX that a lot of times don't look very good, and it's and this is nice to see what happens if we spend $200 million on practical effects on having hundreds of extras of having them all be in costume and having period accurate food setting, costuming language, whatever else it's incredible. The kind of movies you get if you spend that $200 million differently. Um, So that, that was, that was really great. Great to see. Like you said, there's great scenes where, there's eight or nine men on horse sabers out dashing into battle. And I was like, this looks incredible. This looks amazing. And I haven't seen something like that on screen in quite a long time. Yeah. Like, I mean, like just watching the trailer, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you can see, yeah, like any, any, any of these scenes, it'll, it'll be at the palace. There'll be 40 people in the background. Like, Oh my God. And every one of them is in costume. I said at the top, I don't know how 
Ridley Scott managed to do this so fast. Because Ridley Scott's getting up there. And and I, I love this comparison now that he's getting drawn between like Scorsese and Spielberg, who are making films like The Fablemans and Killers of the Flower Moon, and saying, like, this 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 might be one of my last if the I only had one. more time, I could make more movies. And meanwhile, Ridley Scott is cranking out like three movies a year and has no plan of stopping. And he's seemingly only getting better. Um, I don't know what this is about. I love it. I hope the man doesn't lose a step. Um, I don't know if I have much more to say about Napoleon. Oh, 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 uh, uh, two, two quick things to say about Napoleon. Number one, uh, the runtime kind of hurts. It's a little long. It's a two and a half hours. I'll admit it's a lot. Uh, but it feels big and grand, and it, it earns it, I think. It's definitely poised for those streaming services where you can sit down and watch a four-hour cut over several days. Uh, yes. Same thing with Killers of the Flower Moon. They don't, they don't care about the length because they know it's great for their streaming service. Yeah. Number two, surprisingly gory. It is an R-rated feature. Uh, I wouldn't recommend watching with parents if possible uh, for some of the more intimate scenes. Uh, but yeah, I, I was... It, I mean, it opens with a beheading, which I think is is smart and sets the tone for what's to come. The idea of a of a a, a leader, a ruler who will fall, right, in in, in probably graphic fashion. Uh, that's good stuff. Real smart, real sharp. Um, two questions for you, Andy, before we wrap. Three questions for you, I think. Number one, any other thoughts? Uh, no. Continue. Uh, number two. Interestingly, uh, Zack Snyder had the four-hour cut of Justice League come out, came out, and we watched it. Will you be watching the four-hour cut of Napoleon? Uh no. I, I, like it was a struggle to get through the uh, two hours and forty minutes that it is. I'm not adding in another hour and what. I don't I, know what more I'm gonna get out out of it. I think I would. I think I would watch it, and I'm curious if this will influence uh, our recommendations. But Andy, would you recommend Napoleon? I would. Uh, Definitely big content warning. It is a war film. There's lots of graphic battle scenes of 1800s uh, level warfare. Like I said, it starts with a very graphic beheading, so you kind of know what you're getting into from from the beginning. But outside of that, uh, there are phenomenal battle scenes, and it's great to see all the money on screen in in terms of extras. And I mean, they use VFX as well. the story, the plot kind of is lacking narratively. It's not as interesting as it could be. We don't really have a deep dive in, into our character. Uh, it's kind of difficult with a historical figure that's so divisive and so biasedly written about. Uh, but overall, I'd recommend. I would recommend it too. I, I think it's might be my favorite recent Scott film. And I like Last Duel a lot, but man, this played great. I saw it on a real big screen. I went and saw it with my dad over Thanksgiving. I had a great time. Um, I'm looking, I, I would like to watch that four hour cut. Actually. I'm in the, op, I think I'm in the opposite camp. I think I want to go a little deeper. I, I want to see what didn't get in there. You know, like I, I think, you know, watching something like killers of the flower moon, like I've really, really starting to come around on the idea that like length is not necessarily something to be opposed to, right? Like in the right, in the, in, in, in the hands of the right filmmaker, like you, you won't even notice. And I think Ridley Scott's Got something really good here. I do think it's going to be a little divisive because it's kind of feels like it's got its feet in two camps. But like I, I like it. I like Napoleon, and I'm looking forward to what Scott's doing next. And I, I, if I do watch that firework cut, I'll definitely report back on the show. Woof. All right, my summary movie's done. Sick. Andy's taking Saltburn. But before we get to that, we need to talk about one other thing. Andy, what do we call this segment? 
it's time for the death of cinema. So this is parentheses box office doom is what we're we're talking about. Um, in two two big stories uh, that came out this week, uh, Disney is having a, a dismal year at the box office. Uh, twenty uh, what are, the year of our Lord twenty twenty three has not been good. Uh, Disney has has not made a billion dollar film this year. In contrast, in twenty nineteen they had seven. And this is My the first God. year since 20, 2014 that they didn't have a billion-dollar feature. And not only have they not had a billion-dollar feature, they've missed hugely on so many movies. Uh, Ant-Man 3, Quantumania, recently The Marvels, uh, Wish uh, as well. Elemental actually ended up doing okay. Indiana Jones and in, in the Dial of Destiny was a big flop. So most of their movies this year have been just disasters and it's it's a stark contrast to when they they were like box office gods and invince invincible at at the box office and now uh, the winds are changing for sure zach what, what are your thoughts i think disney has had this really clumsy long-term strategy and it's funny because disney is not typically known to be a company with a clumsy long-term strategy long-term strategy is kind of their game um, Disney has always treated things like home media uh, with a 10-foot pole. Uh, way back in the day, they didn't want to release VHS tapes. And then when they did, they charged a bunch and put them in fancy clamshells. And they had the Disney vault. And, and uh, they, they wanted to make sure that their intellectual property, their IP, was always held near and dear. And that they could distribute it whenever they needed, uh, like, like cards at a poker table, for like, like profit or growth. Or they could lean on those properties and grow them as, as necessary. But through the 2010s, Disney has pivoted and they have just been firing every cannon in the arsenal, just making banger after banger after banger. They started up their line of live action remakes, right, which have been divisive, but functionally have been cannibalizing their own own catalog to just start putting out three or four of these a year. And the ones that don't really work, they put them on Disney Plus, which is a whole new platform they came out with to put all of their content, just make it all available as soon as possible. And to drive up subs to Disney+, Plus, they said every movie we put in theaters is going to go to Disney+, Plus in 90 days. So if you miss it in theaters, wait three months, and it'll be available at home. Like, all of these decisions have made them money very quickly, but everyone hasn't come with the safety of a long-term gain. And the idea has been, like the stupid new Star Wars trilogy that will come up with the very beginning of an idea and then we won't actually plot out like a strat to do long-term to make this work. And this was clever for Bob Iger because he left the company in 2019 and Bob Chapik slid in and immediately gets starts getting hammered with all of these L's because Iger did not actually, I think, really build a, like a plan. And now Iger's back and it feels like the magic's gone and Wish comes out and it's not nearly the banger that what would a Disney princess movie should be it's bad news andy like it's bad news for disney it sounds like they're pivoting kinda uh what do you think it's taken some time i'm gonna blame disney plus they came out with their streaming service yeah yeah and all of a sudden they're in the content creation business and that is an expensive one to be with and that's just they kind of started diluting the brand with all these marvel shows and they just started kind of greenlighting all this real expensive 
stuff and and that's really i think cut into their superhero stuff and i again it's just like what was bob chapik chapik greenlighting because all the stuff that's coming out now uh like th- like marvel's ant-man 3 wish were all things greenlit several years ago when bob chapik was was in charge um and it, it it's been quantity over quality it seemed to be when he he took over and dis like you said disney is pivoting to focus back on quality and and on characters and maybe people you know a little bit more thoroughly um and less on just cranking out shows and in movies because they have a, a streaming service to support now of course uh, and disney plus like you said is, is a tremendous part of it like not not only in training audiences that media will be available there shortly after theatrical release but in just general startup costs again it was take a bite of the apple today every other studio is starting up a streaming service we should start one too and for what it's worth disney plus quickly rose the ranks and is one of the most popular and i think they are totally making paper and that's fine but they are very quickly realizing like everybody else that they're functionally operating at a loss and this is with disney pulling their funny financials that they've always done with like every release to like lay part of the cost in one quarter and part of the cost in another so like even with baller house of mouse accounting they still cannot figure out a way to make to make money uh, you're right they're pivoting just today uh there was a statement that was like we're really looking forward to making quality not quantity in 2024 and it's like that's a great idea also you guys are already making mufasa right the lion king <laughs> by barry jenkins yeah. and you're working on toy story 5 and frozen 3 is in the works and last week bob Iger was talking about frozen 4 like who who's running this company and, and i think maybe like marvel that that can be a solution, right? Maybe a change in leadership is due, like not only in Iger, but maybe in Kevin Feige over in Marvel. Like maybe we start to, you know, play around with the house style a little bit. Maybe we shake it up, you know, maybe, maybe that would be good. They got to do, do something. They, they got to make changes because it's not the same world as it was pre pandemic. Uh, you know, in 2019, there were no competing, uh, streaming services. Like you didn't have Disney plus, you didn't have, um, HBO Max or Max, uh, you didn't have ha- half the ones that, and you didn't have those expenses. And also, audiences were still really hungry for the Marvel machine, and they were going to everything Marvel made, no matter the quality. And luckily, back then the quality was good. But now, like we've said, the Marvels is, is a good movie that people are just aren't going to see because they're tired of because they had to sit through five mediocre superhero movies. And so, the pivot back to quality and focusing on that will help. Uh, there's supposed to be continuing star wars with daisy ridley we'll see if that happens because those projects get constantly announced and and shelved uh we'll see if any, any of that materializes they they got avatar 3 to look forward to in 2025 um it's just tough because it's like how do you write write the ship when decisions have to be made years in advance it's really tough yeah um it's funny like i can't wait to see if 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 disney's plan is to pivot to quality going forward like i and they already spent 250 million dollars on the likes of indy 5 and the marvels i can't wait to see what they're willing to green light for a budget on quality over quantity you know what i mean like how much 350 million 400 yeah budget's got to go down i think you got to be smarter like there's a lot of times on this show we'll cover a film that, that is not that expensive. I mean, in, in the big scheme of things, obviously, these are still hundreds of millions of dollars we're talking about. But, like, we'll see something that's really particularly special. And, like, these movies don't have to cost that much, you know? Like, Disney just has this... Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Yeah, less, less than 100 million, right? Like, 
And that movie looks huge and inventive and the world looks really immersive. Like I, I was asking you about it on the show. But Disney just has this like sickness, like where everything they make costs too much because they don't put in the work and they don't plan ahead. And they're just, it, it's like they're trying to catch up with their own legacy or something. And it's like, you guys need to get out of, out of your own way and remember like what, what put this studio on the map. I think it's good original work. I mean, look at Guardians 3, right? Having as much success as it did this year. That was a, a surprise hit for Disney. And even I was skeptical about that one. And now Warner Brothers has... James Gunn, and he's working on Aquaman 2 uh, for the holiday, which I think also might underperform this year, right? I mean, I think that's the kind of expectation. I don't even, I don't know what's going to happen in this movie. So theaters are a little bit nervous because usually there's a big holiday tent pole that they can just put all their, their chips on. Uh, things Previous installments include Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, e- even no, not Top Gun. That that was came out in the summer. Uh, Avatar two last year. You know, there's usually a movie where they can just say everyone will go see this, and then there'll be some others. Well, you know, that might people might see. And this year we don't really have that. The the big Christmas releases are again uh, Aquaman two, uh, The Color Purple, which is a film musical reimagining of that property. Wonka the week before, but that's not exactly on Christmas Day. And then uh, other little things like Ferrari and the Iron Claw, like in independent movies. So you got things that people will see, and that might spread the wealth a little. But you don't have a big, you know, huge billion dollar promising film that everyone's just going to go see. I'm excited about Aquaman too, but I don't think general audiences are. Yeah, I definitely didn't see the first one, but I think it's worth mentioning Aquaman 2. I think will do great overseas. I think that I think that's going to be like the overseas runaway. Um, that's going to be the big exciting release that week. Um, also, uh, Wonka, Color Purple, Mean Girls remake. Musicals are back, baby. <laughs> did, didn't you know? Uh, did, weren't you aware? Um, even though Mean Girls isn't coming out this holiday. You're right. Like I think this holiday is looking a little trim. Disney originally had planned to have Avatar and or Star Wars out in alternating years. We covered that on the show way back when they announced that. And of course, that didn't happen because they can't figure out how to make a Star Wars movie anymore. And believe it or not, I think people are going to be stoked for Avatar 3, which is bananas. Because a year ago, I would have said, I don't think it. Well, a year ago, I would have been watching Avatar 2. But a couple years ago, I would have said, nobody's going to be stoked for Avatar 3. It's probably not even going to happen. Um one thing's for sure, like, I think we've about burnt, burnt the fuel in the 2023 tank. It seems like pretty much everything cool has mostly come out. I mean, obviously, I'm still looking forward to some stuff. But yeah, like, I don't, I don't think we're going to have any Barbenheimers, like, for the rest of the year. It's pretty, pretty much done. Yeah, the, big, so, the biggest movies that have come out have come out. That's right. So get your top 10 list together. All right, start start thinking about it. Hop on Letterboxd and start putting it together. See uh, see what your favorites are. I'm not going to get mine together. We do the big show at the end of the year, of course. We cover our favorite top tens. And, uh, you know, if you want more of that, subscribe to our script and we'll uh, we'll send it to you when we make it. But uh, any other thoughts on this before we move on to Saltburn, Andy? Uh, any thoughts on, you know, the state of the, state of the industry? I mean, it, it's going to be... There's a lot of December releases, but it's going to be a little shaky over Christmas. We'll see what kind of wins the the weekend. It it could be the kind of thing where maybe all the movies do do well, but uh, they could all just kind of, kind of bomb because audiences have a lot of at home uh, options. So we'll see what they actually come out for. It's true. It was a funny thing. I think I told you this. Uh, going to see Napoleon with my dad, he said, "You know, he said, God, I haven't been to a movie theater in, in a long time." And I thought, well, 
Dad, we went and saw Indiana Jones 5 this summer. You saw that with me. Have you seen anything since? He kind of thought it was like, nope, that's it. I was like, you haven't gone to see anything? He was like, Zach, look how much content I have in my house on my television. You know, he's like, what am I going to go watch? I was like, yeah, I think a lot of Americans feel that way. But uh, obviously, he's the bellwether for everything. Love you, Dad. Uh, we should move on to our final review of the episode. Really excited to talk about this one. Andy's taking the summary. Please, Andy, take it away. Saltburn. So this is the sophomore follow-up from Emerald Fennell, who previously did Promising Young Woman, which we reviewed back in 2020. That movie was kind of mixed, uh, very divisive. I remember saying that, well, we thought that uh, Emerald Fennell had a ton of promise as a director, and it would be interesting to what her future films would be like. Here we are with Saltburn, which stars uh, sorry, <laughs> Barry Keown as Oliver, who is a new student at Oxford, and this is taking place back in the uh, fall of uh, 2006, 2007. And Barry, or Oliver rather, is an outsider. He is a working class person who's had to work very hard to get in into Oxford. He's a scholarship boy, as, as they say. He's not cool. He doesn't really have any friends here. And he's in a world he doesn't really know or recognize where there's a bunch of absurdly wealthy elitist students. Um, his first class has literally two students in it, and it's them just talking with a professor. And the professor knows the other student. He's like, oh, I, I went here with your mother. And they're very chummy. And so he's in a world he doesn't know but would love nothing more than to be part of it. He eventually makes friends with Jacob Elordi's Felix, uh, who's one one of the the wealthy vapid characters in in the movie? They they have a, a great school year, and at the end end of the sorry, the end of the school year, he invites him to come to Saltburn, his family estate and home, uh, for the summer. Uh, when he g goes out there, he then tries to you know become one of these elite. Uh, people he tries to play the games that they they play he wants desperately to become an in, an insider there's some uh, other great performances of course uh rosamund pike richard e grant are in this uh archie madukwe who we saw in the gran turismo movie is great it, playing a, a really good part because he, he was just kind of a stock character in, in the gran turismo mo movie so it's nice to see him in here so that's our setup zach what do you think uh saltburn is uh really fantastic vibes and it crucially lacks uh in substance but only in like the second half i, I got halfway through saltburn and was thinking this is a top 10 film of the year this movie's awesome it looks so great god if you've seen the trailer if you're watching live uh the trailer looks incredible like the music seems good you have a, a great cast uh, emerald fennel's an exciting new director and while we didn't love promising young woman um, I felt like Saltburn is going to be something really exciting and really different. Um, but then, like, surprisingly, much like Promising Young Woman, I find Saltburn's, like, faults come in its script. Uh, Emerald Fennel wrote and directed both films. Uh, Saltburn begins to take some turns in its later parts um, that don't that don't feel natural, like natural extensions of of what we see in the open and what we see in the trailer. And I think it ends up being surprisingly misleading and, and I was really bummed. Uh, I think it might be honorable mention material this, this time around for me. I, I I'm still thinking about it. I, I, again, I love the look. I love the feel of this movie. 
Uh, but boy, its characters just do some odd things. And I, I think that's really strange. And I'm still trying to piece together why and what that means. Um, before we started recording, Andy and I were talking a little bit about it because we haven't actually talked about it yet. This will be our first real conversation. So thanks for listening in. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get what Emerald Fennel is trying to say sometimes, you know. And and when I watched Promising Young Woman, I thought it's because I'm just a dumb man. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these guys that she is pointing at in that film, and I need to 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 not be that and, and grow and change and not be that dude. But when I watch Saltburn, I just end up a little perplexed, and I, and I want to talk about that without talking about spoilers because that's not what we do here, Andy. What did you think of Saltburn? I loved the look of it. The the vibes of Saltburn were great. I, I was so excited when this movie started. It has a great intro opening scene, and the the first act is so good. And usually that's my biggest complaint, is even a lot of times really good movies or exciting movies will have a lot of kind of a boring first act where they're doing all the setup and table setting, and then it really gets going. And this is kind of the opposite, where we have a really strong start uh, basically, their year at school is is the first act, and we see uh, Oliver slowly break into to this kind of elite kids club and uh, begin to just kind of come out of his shell, blow off class, party, experiment with substances and girls and boys, and uh, we see a, a lot of interesting character things, and then we set the table for Saltburn, and then it doesn't really go any anywhere it it reminded me of of much better boot movies about the same topic uh, a lot of people have been comparing it to the talented mr ripley from 1999 which is about someone kind of assuming uh someone else's identity in order to break into uh, an elite uh circle and also it reminded me of the little stranger which we re- reviewed on the show with um domino gleason about uh, a doctor in england who's trying to also break into the very elite posh society and that movie is very much about self-acceptance and and inevitably he he doesn't and in that movie and it's about something and in this we don't really get that our characters are kind of the same from beginning to end they don't really they don't change they they don't there's not new revelations about them uh when a lot of the surprises are, are are all just revealed by the end it's just kind of eye rolling and not surprising at all but the the filmmaking itself is inc- is incredible there there's these great scenes at uh saltburn which is this very gothic like manner there's a big party scene halfway through uh i mean uh emerald Fennell has such an incredible eye behind the camera but the writing is just lacking and i think maybe she just needs to work with a different writer and not yeah. not her own scripts yeah, uh, I know this film was shot by uh, Linus Sandgren, uh, who's a cinematographer for uh, show favorite Babylon. Love that movie. Also shot No Time to Die uh, with Sam Mendes. Like, my man knows how to shoot a movie. And like, one thing's for sure, like, I think Emerald Fennel has dialed in her directing and especially like her ability to collaborate um, in this sophomore feature. Um, but her writing is 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 not... It's not bad. Okay, I don't want to say it's bad. You know what this movie reminded me of? It's, it's funny. You say it reminded me of Talented Mr. Ripley. I definitely got that, got that vibe. It also reminded me of Alex Garland's Men. Because if you saw Men, mm. uh, Men, and we covered it on the show, uh, Men's, like the first half of Men is like going in a good direction and I like the pace. And then the second half is like, whoa, like what? what is happening? Like I did not think this was the message that I was 
kind of in 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 tune for. And the trailer for Saltburn and also Emerald Fennel's uh, interviews around the film, I think, I tragically have hurt this. At least for me, maybe I've been following it too closely. But the the, the movie may, really makes it look like it is a film about obsession. And in that way, uh, it's a film about obsession with Barry Cohen's uh, character, Oliver Quick, uh, with uh, Jacob Elordi's character, Felix. Um, it looks like Jacob Elordi is the center of attention, the, the crown jewel. Uh, somebody said that, to Admiral Bell in an interview that um, you just made a movie about how, like, Jacob Elordi being unbelievably hot. And she was like, yep, absolutely. <laughs> and it really seems that way. And, and in the first act, you get these really great montages of the two of them getting to know each other and spending time and getting a pint and, and like... All of that feels so genuine and good, and I was reminded of like how I felt watching Bros when Bros was like this big cinematic gay romance, but it feels a little phony and a, li- a little removed because it's like a rom com. But Saltburn feels so honest and 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 real and intimate and thoughtful and grand and gothic. And then once we actually get to our house, it turns out that Felix is not necessarily the object of desire and you you've you've been rubed in the first act and it's like what hold on and and i think that is a bit of a bummer and it's not that i i shouldn't have expected it to be that i think if anything it makes it better for rewatch but i i feel like she does a good she does such a good job of setting up something that the movie isn't going to be that when it finally arrives at what the movie is you're disjointed and you're not you're not in the seat for it because you're thinking well, well hold on what where was this going what, what was what was going to happen with that plot thread and it makes for an interesting feature. I, I mean, the tagline of the film, we're all about to lose our minds. The poster looks like this like astral, uh, kind of kind of trippy LSD almost kind of thing. But I, I don't I don't I don't know if the movie ever gets there, really. And it's a shame because I, I do like it, but it it's like it's trying to be something it's not, I think. Yeah, I think one of the strong parts of this are its characters. When we finally get to Saltburn, we're introduced to kind of the wider cast. Uh, like we said, Oliver is desperate to be be wealthy, be accepted into this elitist circle. But uh, when he arrives, arrives at Saltburn, there's so much he clearly doesn't know. So there's so many like traditions and so many uh, just culture uh, of the very wealthy that he doesn't know. And he's constantly stepping on his own toes or other people's toes. Uh, there's uh, the butler that's here just looks down on him in disdain, like constantly. It's really funny. Um, but he's he's in this world with other really interesting characters. Again, uh, Jacob Elordi is kind of this aloof, you know, incredibly attractive, but also kind of vapid, but more caring character seemingly than uh, you know most other other people. We have Archie Maduque uh, plays a character named Farley, who's kind of the antagonist of the film. He he knows what Oliver is all about, and he. Uh, sometimes can use him a lot of times is just very much uh, sabotages him and as well as other other people um, we we have the parents played by Rosamund Pike and Richard E. e. Grant who are just terrible rich p- people <laughs> it's great they talk about someone dying and, and Rosamund Pike says oh well she, she would she would always die just to get people's attention um, and and again he's trying to navigate these kind of absurd people in this absurd place uh but i think that, that was one of the more interesting parts of it are the kind of dynamics of of the different characters it's almost kind of like the royal family where everyone has different priorities and uh, sometimes they're working together sometimes they're not there's alliances and non-alliances and all with this fantastic gothic backdrop of the this english estate so it's like man there's some of this movie that just really really works and it's a shame that the 
overall, it kind of doesn't. You're right. The performances are really tremendous. Uh, Barrett Keown is uh, fantastic to follow. I, I'm so used to him being just kind of like a side character. Like he, he doesn't often get the protagonist role. So it's nice to see him uh, up front and center. And he manages to have that like he's got that deep eye thing. Like where you, 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 you can look him in the eyes and be like, I have no idea what this person is thinking. Right. Like mysterious mystique almost. And it makes for uh, a unique character and Oliver Quick. Jacob Elordi is tremendous. As Felix, he is uh, the most likable, charismatic, interesting person in the room. Like it is immediately apparent uh, why anybody at this school would want to be friends with Felix, would want to talk to him, why just want want him to look at them for ten seconds. You know, like his his light is warm and bright, and I, I can tell it's immediately obvious that Oliver wants to be in that light. Uh, Archie Archie Medeque, uh he's he's really good in this movie. I like him more in this than I liked him in Gran Turismo, and he's he's the lead in Gran Turismo. And tragically, in Gran Turismo, he gets third billing behind Orlando Bloom and David Harbour, <laughs> and he's the lead in the movie. And in this, he gets Orlando last Bland. Billing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was that? Orlando Loom? Was that the joke? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, in the, I got to reset. Uh, but in this movie, like, he's really good, even as this side character, Farley, who's this bit of an antagonist and is constantly looking down at Oliver for not not being from wealth like he is and everybody else is. Uh, Rosamund Pike's having a great time. Richard E. Grant's real goofy. Like, I think the cast is great. And yeah, our setting is so, so tremendous. I had read on Twitter that Emerald Fennel was able to acquire this estate in the UK where the entire film was shot um, because her parents come from wealth and they had some sweet connection and it's like their family friend or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know about any of that. All that's unconfirmed. Uh, but I did want to state that this is all shot on location and it looks tremendous. Saltburn is not a real estate. I, I don't actually have the name of the real house. But boy, like it's such a treat to spend time in, especially like just from our open, like when we're introduced to Saltburn and as we like move through the house in this very quick off the cuff tour with Jacob Elordi's characters, this music kind of swells in and uh, Oliver just gets drawn in by like the, just, just the, the, the scale of the place, you know, and, and somebody, it's a surprisingly funny film, a la Promising Young Woman, some great jokes, a good tension even. Um, somebody will say, oh, I'll meet you in the library. Like the li- what the library? Where is that? Or or like oh you you can you can find that 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 servant in the kitchen and they're like where where's the kitchen again? Like it's just such a big estate for like five people to spend time in that it ends up feeling like old and 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 stately and rich while also having a character like Felix be so contemporary and down to earth and almost like hipster liberal right um, makes for, makes for a good back and forth and creates an interesting landscape uh, for Oliver to kind of find himself in Saltburn, I think. I I wanted to mention uh, a couple of last things. Uh, first of all, Carrie Mulligan makes a brief appearance in the movie. Her character is credited as poor dear Pamela, which is <laughs> <laughs> hilarious, I think. Um, I really li- enjoyed the score to this. It's a mix of some classical music, but also it's got some synth things going on. I want to listen to it again. might be adding it to my... Uh, very long film soundtrack playlist, which I've not added to very much this year uh, at all. But I, I think that again, the vibes of the, of the film are immaculate. <laughs> like that, that part uh, is working again. It's it's just kind of our narrative plot. Like where do we go? Where does our character end up across this? Also, I've I've seen this interesting comparison to vampires that everyone in the film is a vampire in one way or or another, and there's there's a lot of kind of 
uh, subtle and not so subtle vampire imagery throughout it. So that's kind of an interesting thing you might think about it if you see it. Thinking about it right now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I can kind of see. Yeah. Yeah. That comes together. All right. <laughs> Any other? Yeah. The music's great. Again, it's such a good looking movie. Like I, I like. Listen, every artist should should work towards being the best version of themselves that they want to be. I think Emerald Fennel's a fine writer. Honestly, though, she dialed in the directing so good here. I almost want to see her do a feature she didn't write at this point. Like I'd love I'd love to see her take a swing at an independent script, you know, or maybe pick up a script from another prolific screenwriter and see what comes out, you know? Like Saltburn's really good. I just think it tragically doesn't stick the landing in the third act. It, it's, it's got such a great launch in act one. Act two gets rocky. Act three starts to fall right off the side. And it's like, oh, no. Like, oh, bummer. You know, like, I, I, I really do think it's a cool flick. I'll probably rewatch. But we should get to recommendations. Uh, Andy, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Saltburn? I would only recommend it to people who are like have heard about it and you're excited to see it because I know a lot, it's had a lot of buzz. It's got some, you know, is it going to be nominated for Oscars? Uh, so if you're interested in it and you're you were a fan of her previous movie, I I would recommend it. But probably for the average person, I I would say probably wait, uh, save it for streaming um, because it it does have some some crazy scenes. It's definitely bold cinema. Uh, but I think definitely for the fans of like A24 films and independent cinema. Yep, same boat. Bold cinema fans, uh, you're going to like Saltburn, I think, or you won't like it, but whatever. You'll come out of the other side of it and feel like, you know what, I saw something I can't see anywhere else. And that's ultimately what Saltburn is. It's an escape to a place that none of us can go. And I think that's what makes it so exciting uh, for our lead, right, Oliver Quick. Uh, unfortunately, I think it also starts to overstay its welcome, you know, not unlike uh, maybe our protagonist. Um, I think Saltburn's good, though. I, I, like I said, I don't know if it's top 10 of the year material, but like, I, I'm going to be thinking about this movie for a little while, I think. And if I do want to revisit Emerald Fennel's work at some point, I would watch this over Promising Young Woman in a New York minute. And I like Promising Young Woman fine, but Saltburn is special. Just, it's not quite as shiny as I think a lot of us maybe might have thought it would be. Um, and that's our show for the week. Good Lord. Episode 234 of Off Script. Uh, another one down, Andy. We're coming up on 250. What are we watching next week? So next week, or this Friday, is December 1st. New month is rolling over. We're going to be taking a look at Godzilla Minus One, which is the latest uh, film of the Godzilla franchise. Uh, this takes place post-World War II, which is kind of what Godzilla has always recommended. It's a big action effects heavy film. Uh, other releases. Oh, the other thing we're watching is May December, which is going to be out on Netflix, and this is the drama starring Natalie Portman and Juliana. Oh, uh, I can't remember her name now. Um, <laughs> anyways, the, it's it's. I don't big, know who you're talking about. I can't either. Hold on, I'll figure it out. Julianne Moore. There we go. That's the one. Julianne Moore. Julianne yes, Moore. Of course. Um, She's great. This. This is a bit. This is a big drama awards contender film. Uh, Natalie Portman plays an actress who will be is doing research to play uh, the character that Julianne Moore is, and who was involved in in like a criminal scandal earlier in her life. And so she's going to do research and kind of learn about that. It's supposed to be a very dramatic thing. Um, that's going to be December first, as well as Beyonce's uh, 
renaissance concert uh we're not watching that but that is going to be also coming out on friday and some upcoming december releases uh to look forward to uh, poor things opening december 8th along with the boy and the heron by uh, studio new studio ghibli film eileen the uh psychodrama starring thomas and mckenzie and and Hathaway. And then, of course, on December 15th, we'll be taking a look at, at Wonka. So a lot of really great releases uh, coming up for next week, Godzilla Minus One and May December. I think December, the December 8th show, we might have to, whatever that Tuesday after, December 12th or 13th, um, we might have to do three, man. I, I, like maybe we can skip Eileen, but I'm definitely watching Boy in the Heron, and, and I really want to see yeah. poor things. I think that movie is going to be, it's got, like, it's got like a 96 on Rotten or something. It's insane. Um, so we'll see. Won't won't make won't make a billion dollars. That's not how it works. But uh, excited to see it anyway. Uh, if you like, I just now I got to now I got to plug the show. This is the part where I plug the show. If you liked Off Script today, episode two thirty four or two thirty three last week. If you liked our Saltburn review, or maybe maybe disagreed with our Napoleon review, or agreed, uh, the best way you can correspond with us is you can email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com and share your thoughts on the show. You can comment or DM, you know, whatever, on the usual social media sites. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. You can also follow us on those platforms. That's a sneaky something to get updates about the show. And of course, if you're watching the show on YouTube where we have a lot of really great things going on, please go check out the YouTube channel. Shameless plug for the YouTube channel. Uh, subscribe over there if you can swing it. We, we're publishing individual reviews. We're growing. We're growing fast. Things are going, not that fast, but things are going on over on YouTube. And of course, uh, the audio version of the show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartMedia, all the usual podcast places where you can like and subscribe and rate and review with five stars and then whatever you want in the comments, you know, like, but, but hopefully nice things because, you know, that's what we try to go for here on off script uh you can check out our website offscriptfilmreview.com for more from the show interviews exciting things we're doing and of course you can follow us at offscript film review uh for whatever your film needs are movies are expensive podcasts are cheap and andy and i've been doing this long enough to tell you confidently that a we're usually right about things and b we can see stuff before it happens it's like telling the future i'm telling you this jenna ortega thing for scream 7 we were talking about last week a day before it happened we were like oh no that's not they're just gonna put the whole thing on her shoulders and here we are think of what you'd know had you listened to off script think of all the things you could accomplish if you listen to andy and i every single week and you can do that because we'll be back next week with godzilla minus one in may december so if you want to hear that show subscribe where you can i should wrap it up this has been way too long. Uh, from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.